Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 to 29. That will be our scripture uh, text for this morning. Uh, If you've been with us, you know that we've been working through Galatians for a couple of months now. We've made it up to the end of chapter 3. That means we are, as of this afternoon, halfway through the book. Uh, But uh, we're going to take a break for uh, the month of December. We're going to uh, have some sermons relating to Christmas and the advent of Jesus. And so uh, we'll we'll have a little bit of a break uh, before we jump back in and finish up Galatians uh, 4 through 6 uh, in the new year. Before we read, uh, please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we uh, do praise you for your word and uh, for your grace, uh, for the gospel. Uh, We praise you for Jesus who bore our sin. Uh, We thank you uh, for your word, uh, that we can know Jesus through your word. And we pray that that as we read Galatians 3 this morning, as we think about its message, we pray, Father, that you would uh, speak to us, that you would soften our hearts by your spirit, that you would... Uh, Open our eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Have you ever woken up feeling like a failure, powerless to get things right, living under the weight of condemnation, wishing, longing, hoping for something to change. I've actually, I've I've been there. I've actually had months where I woke up feeling like a failure, whole months. Why do we live like that? Well, there are probably a lot of reasons, uh, but I think in part, Paul would say that we are living under the law, not living out of our union with Christ. We we are failing to live out of the redemption that we have in Jesus, which isn't saying that that we're not saved. It's just saying that, that we're not acting like it. We're not believing it. We forget what God has done, and we act as if Jesus had never come. Well, we're going to contrast two different ways of of living this morning. We're going to contrast living under the law and living out of our union with Christ. 
And, and first, this is really a historical contrast. It's contrasting the life for God's people under the law of Moses in the Old Covenant with a life that we have on this side of the cross and on this side of Pentecost. But it's also indicative of an existential contrast, right? An, an experienced, lived out contrast where as God's people, we, we often live as if Christ hadn't come, but we are still under the prison or the guardianship of the law. So as we go through the sermon this morning, you might want to ask yourself, am I living as if I'm still under the law and not under grace? Or do I remember, uh, do I live out uh, day by day, do I live out of the fullness of God's blessings that I have in the gospel? First, living under the law. If you want, you can turn to the back of your bulletin. There's an outline there with the two main points and a couple of subpoints that we'll look at. First, we'll talk about living under the law. Uh, living under the law is living with a sense of, of powerlessness, of condemnation, and even of longing. First, powerlessness. Verse 21, uh, Paul says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Now, now Paul has been talking for some time in Galatians about the relationship between the law, the Mosaic law, and God's promise, specifically his promises to Abraham. And uh, there's, there's a basic works principle, a performance principle enshrined in the law, right? Do this and you will live, God said. It's, it's two-sided, right? Man obeys and God gives life as a result. But the promise, Paul has said, the promise is not like the law, right? A promise is one-sided. At least it has, it's one-sided in its obligation. God obligates himself to give the inheritance to his people. God obligates himself to give his blessings. And so the question comes naturally to mind, right? Well, do these two things contradict, right? Is the law... Uh, contrary to the promises of God. The one offers life by obedience, the other offers life by promise. Are these contradictory ways of receiving God's blessing? Uh, now, it's important to pause right here for a moment just to notice that Paul is thinking about the law uh, solely in terms, in, in relation of, of, uh, to soteriology. Uh, soteriology just means the doctrine of salvation or the teachings of salvation. So Paul is thinking about the law in terms of how it relates to being saved. Uh, there are lots of other things uh, to say about the law. Paul's just not saying them here. Um, he's asking a, a simple question. Are the law and the promises two contrary methods of receiving God's blessing? Two contrary methods of receiving life. And what's his answer there in verse 21? His answer is certainly not. Certainly not. Why not? Well, because, says Paul, if a law had been given that could give life, well, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. See, the, the first half of his, his argument, he admits that if the law could give life, well then, yes, righteousness would be by the law. And the implication then is that the law and the promises would contradict one another. It would be different methods of salvation if the law could give life. Right? If you could make yourself righteous by the law, okay, fine. Then these two things 
are, are two different tracks, so to speak. But why can't the law bring life then? Paul himself says in, in Romans 7 that the law promises life. The law promises life. Romans 7.10, he says the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Why does the law which promises life end up bringing death? Romans 8.3, again, Paul says, the law could not bring righteousness because it was weakened by the flesh. See, the problem is not with the law. The law is perfectly good. Uh, but the problem is that our sin and our broken hearts, our, our flesh, well, not so much, right? Not so perfectly good. We can hear rules all day long, but we still break them. Why do we do that? Not because of some insufficiency in the rules. It's not that there's a problem with the law. The problem was with us. The problem was, is with our sinful nature. And so life under the law is really a life of powerlessness because the law doesn't change our nature. The law doesn't empower us to obey. This is why James refers to the law as a mirror. The law shows us what we are like. That's it. Which means as we see the standard of the law and we see how far we have fallen short, all the law does is show us our failure. It shows us our weakness. It shows us our powerlessness to actually do what's right. It's actually pretty depressing. And does that mean that we never do any good? I mean, well, actually, there are lots of amazing things that people do, aren't there? I mean, people write incredible stories and beautiful pieces of music. Uh, someone invented the Internet. I don't know who it was. Uh, somebody programmed my iPhone, right? That was great. I'm very thankful for that person. Uh, people at times obey the civil laws, don't they? Uh, and even give to charities. Those, those are all good things, are they not? Martin Luther called this uh, civil righteousness, right? And in a sense, there are lots of amazing things that people do, good things that people do in the world. But if we're sensitive, uh, we'll notice that even in these things, we, we, are, we are living for the wrong things. You know, often people do the right things, very good things, but for wrong reasons, right? We do that all the time, don't we? Another way to put this is, is we might do civil good, we might do natural good, but the law convicts us that in all that, we can do no spiritual good. Uh, see, all of our actions are tainted with selfishness or pride or fear or half-heartedness. We're powerless to do any spiritual good, and by that I mean to do good with a heart rightly oriented toward God. And so we might do good outwardly, but even that is tainted. Because we're not doing it because we love God. We're not doing it to serve our Lord and King. Well, do you ever feel powerless to do any real good? I know I do, right? I, I see what's right, but I fail at it again and again. I, I feel powerless at times to actually change, powerless to do the right thing. I feel, well, trapped, which is... The very language Paul uses, isn't it? Which moves us to our next point, uh, condemned. Uh, you know, the law doesn't empower us to obey. Uh, rather, it imprisons us under sin. Paul repeats this four times in three verses, right? Look, verses 22 to 24. Paul says, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, 
Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse uh, 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So the, the law imprisons, it holds us captive as our guardian. What does Paul mean? The law imprisons us. Well, in verse 22, Paul says, the scripture imprisons, the scripture. And it, it may mean, uh, that, that it may be that he says the scripture because he has a specific scripture passage in mind. Maybe one of the ones that he's just quoted a few verses ago. Maybe Leviticus 18.5, which Paul quoted in Galatians 3.12. Leviticus 18 says about God's law, the one who does them shall live by them. And of course, we, we don't do, and so we're trapped. We don't do. Or maybe he's thinking of Deuteronomy 27, 26, which he quoted back in Galatians 3.10, where Paul says in Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so scripture, right? Scripture in, imprisons all under sin by pronouncing a curse on all, universally. So, so life under the law in verse 23 and life under sin in verse 22 and life under the curse in verse 10 is all the same thing for Paul because the law on account of our sin pronounces a curse. So to be under the law is to be under sin is to be under a curse, Paul says. This is why rules for so many of us are just plain oppressive, right? Uh, they demand without mercy, our failure to meet those demands means our condemnation. So we live under this continual sense of condemnation. We live in a prison of failure. Again, do you ever wake up in the morning feeling like a failure? Or have you ever botched a test or a job or a conversation or a relationship and spent the rest of your day or the rest of the week or the rest of the month wallowing in your failure, heaping condemnation on yourself? wondering if, if your life has any real value, because look at how you failed at. You're living under the law. In most cases, it's not even God's law, right? We all have our own laws, our own standards, our own rules. Um, typically, they're things that have to do with the, the flesh, with, with this world. Uh, we want to excel at the things of this world. We want to be smart or funny or strong or beautiful or rich or well-connected or well-read or well-bred or whatever. And when we fail in these things, we live under a sense of guilt and shame and failure. That's what the law does. It looks at people in the world. It judges by categories in the world. It makes pronouncements, righteous and unrighteous, or in or out, cool or uncool, smart or dumb, funny or dull, rich or poor, whatever. And existentially, right, living under the law means those kinds of categories hold sway in my heart. And I live in this prison of failure and guilt. It's true, maybe sometimes I also live in pride. Maybe I'm on the right side of some of those lines. But the truth is, deep down, I, I think we all know that uh, no matter what we boast in, in, a, in an even deeper way, we have failed at what is most important. I don't love God as I ought. I don't love my neighbor the way I should. I am profoundly self-oriented not God and neighbor oriented. So even when mixed with boasting and pride, failure and guilt hold sway. But also something more. 
which brings us to our next point, which is about long, longing. Uh, there, are, there are two interesting features in our passage, uh, maybe more than that, but <laughs> there are two things here. Uh, the first is Paul uh, not only says the law imprisons and holds captive, but he also says the law is a guardian. Now, the guardian in a, in a Roman home was one who would watch over the kids, uh, take them to and from school, and discipline them when they stepped out of line. Uh, the guardian was not uh, so much a school teacher, but more like a nanny. And I, I, I don't think Paul means something different by calling the law a guardian than saying that the law imprisons, actually. And any child who has someone watching over them 24-7 enforcing the rules of the house will tell you there is no difference between being a child and being a prisoner. In fact, my son said that just the other day. <laughs> unprompted, unrelated to this passage. <laughs> Here's what the image of a guardian emphasizes, though. A, the, the image of a guardian emphasizes the fact that this situation is temporary. Verse 23, Paul says, we, we, Israel was imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Uh, verse 24 says the law was a guardian until... Christ came. The Mosaic law, according to Paul, was, was merely temporary. It served a function for a time. The very function of the law is, is actually to point to something beyond the law. Notice again, verses 22 to 24, uh, 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. See, the, the, the so that and the in order that and even the until statements show the purpose of the law. And they show that that purpose is beyond itself. What's the purpose? Well, verse 23, before faith came. Verse 24, until Christ came. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, right? What is Paul getting at when he says that before faith came? What does that mean? Well, he's not saying that, that nobody had faith before Jesus came. How do we know that's not what Paul is saying? Well, he just spent half a dozen verses telling us that the ones who receive God's blessing are those who have faith like Abraham, right? Clearly, Abraham had faith before Christ came. And Abraham is the model of faith for the rest of us. So what does he mean by before faith came? Well, he means not uh, subjectively our belief, but the object of our faith, right? The content of our faith. The coming of faith for Paul is the same as the coming of Christ, which is why he can say before faith came and then until Christ came. So the object of our faith has come. Jesus has come. The content of our faith has been revealed because Jesus has come into the world. And this is why Paul says the law was our guardian until Christ came. Verse 24, but, but, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. See, the law shows us uh, how powerless we are to do spiritual good. It continually reminds us of our guilt and as a result, we long for this until. We long for the in order that. 
I mean, have you ever met a child in at least our culture who didn't count down the days until they turned 18, right? E even prisoners, right, if, if they don't have a life sentence, uh, may count the days until their release. To be under a guardian is to long to be free from that guardian, to throw off the shackles of that guardian, so to speak. Why? Why here? Why, why, why do we long to throw off the law? Because the law is powerless powerless to really do anything about our situation. All it can do is remind you of how often you fail, can remind you that you fail to do real spiritual good because at bottom you're spiritually broken and you need someone else who can come and make you spiritually whole again. There was a, a great radio preacher in the 40s and 50s that I've mentioned before because he had a great illustration about the law, Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he used to say that the law was like a mirror you look in a mirror, and the mirror shows you the dirt on your face, but the mirror doesn't clean your face. For that, you need something more. You need soap and water, right? All the mirror can do is show you, and all the law can do is show us the dirt in our heart. And inasmuch as it does that, it causes us to long for cleansing, a cleansing that the law itself cannot bring. So to live under the law is to live a life that, that is powerless, that's weighed down by guilt and shame and condemnation, longing to be cleansed, wishing something would change. And in this sense, the law is preparatory, right? It, it prepared Israel for Christ by showing their need of the Savior. And it still functions that way today in our lives. As we see the law and we see our guilt, it makes us long for something else, something better. But in order for the law to do that, actually, we need something that's not always easy to come by, which is honesty. You know, it's easy to admit, it's not easy to admit how powerless we really are. That's why we boast in our accomplishments, right? Look at all I can do, we think. I've done this and that and the other thing. I'm not powerless. It's not easy to admit our guilt. We want to wash it over with good works of one kind or another. Even our longing for Christ, we tend to superficially satisfy with earthly glory, pleasure, and goodness. See, we gorge ourselves on material things and on worldly entertainment in the hopes that we can somehow scratch that itch for something more. We don't want to be honest with ourselves that we have an itch that no worldly good can scratch. So we long for freedom for a freedom that no worldly attainment can bring about. Do we need to be honest? Honest about our impotence, honest about our guilt, honest about our longing to be done with the law and its games. Which brings us to part two of the sermon, living out of our union with Christ. The law has an expiration date, right? Uh, when, when I first got a driver's license uh, in Maryland, I moved from a learner's permit to a provisional license, right? There was, there was still another step. Provisional license. Even though I had passed the driver's test, uh, I still had certain restrictions on my license, I think until I turned 18, right? Uh, Mosaic Law was like that. It was like our guardian. It's like a guardian of children under age. Well, what puts an end to the reign of the law? What, what brings the people of God to maturity and removes the restrictions of the Mosaic administration? It's the coming of Christ. Now look at verse 25. Verse 25, Paul says, But now that faith has come, 
We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. See, the old reality was life under the law, but the new reality is life united to Christ. We are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And here's what what, what, uh, we're going to see about this new reality. We're going to see, one, uh, about our union with Christ. We're going to see that it's by the Spirit that it makes us sons of God and equals in Christ. It's by the Spirit it makes us sons of God and equals in Christ. Uh, First, our our union with Christ is by the Spirit. Uh, You you may be looking at this passage and scratching your head thinking, uh, Luke, uh, the Spirit isn't mentioned in this text. And that's true, at least by name. The Spirit is not mentioned in this text. But I think... I think the Spirit's work actually is mentioned in the text. Uh, Verse 26 uh, says that, uh, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. That's Paul's thesis kind of for these last few verses. But the rest of the verses he spends defending or explaining that. In verse 27 he says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So how do we know that we are in Christ according to Paul? Paul says, verse 27, you were baptized into Christ. Everyone who was baptized into Christ has put on Christ, he says. Baptism is inextricably, I shouldn't try to use words I can't pronounce. Baptism is linked to union. Paul says, every single person who was baptized into Christ has put on Christ. Notice his emphasis, as many of you as were, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now that brings up a question in many of our minds, I think so, brings up a question in my mind. Okay, what does Paul mean by baptized into Christ? Um, This is actually the only time Paul mentions baptism in the book of Galatians. He doesn't mention it before or after this. Uh, and, And I think the question is a valid one. When Paul mentions baptism, does he mean here water baptism? If so, Paul would seem to be saying that there's a necessary correlation between water baptism and union with Christ, right? It it would seem like he's saying water baptism leads to union. Now, uh, obviously, if that's where Scripture takes us, then that's where Scripture takes us, right? We we need to go where Scripture takes us. Uh, But if we look at the broader context, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. So let let me try to show that. I think when Paul mentions being baptized into Christ, he, he means... Uh, what the scriptures call baptism with the Spirit. Uh, Let me give you an argument from within Galatians and actually two arguments from outside of Galatians. So within Galatians, Paul has not mentioned baptism before or after this point. Uh, He does mention the Spirit, though, again and again, repeatedly throughout the book of Galatians. Galatians 3, 2-5, Paul uses the Galatians' initial reception of the Spirit to prove their justification by faith. He says, you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith. He talks about them beginning by the Spirit. Galatians 4, the next passage, verses 1 through 7, Paul will say, Receiving the Spirit brings us out of slavery and into the full experience of sonship, which is a similar point to what he's making here. And so within the context of Galatians, it's the work of the Spirit that Paul keeps pointing to as evidence of who we are in Christ. Well, then we have the question, well, but he doesn't mention the Spirit here. He just mentions baptism. So does baptism ever refer simply to the Spirit's work and not to the the sacrament? 
Well, uh, it does, actually, a couple places. Um, first, there are times in the Gospels when John the Baptist says, I baptize, you, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes us with the Spirit. He's the Spirit baptizer. And so baptism can refer to the work of the Spirit, even in contrast to, the, to water baptism there in the Gospels. Second, uh, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, which says, By the Spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. By the Spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. Uh, It's important to note uh, about that verse that uh, Paul is saying all Christians are baptized by the Spirit. Right? This is not uh, something that some Christians have and other Christians don't. It's not a unique experience, a second blessing in the church. Uh, he's saying all Christians were baptized by the Spirit into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free. What's striking here is the similarity between the Galatians passage and this passage in 1 Corinthians. Both passages refer to baptism. Both passages refer to our, our, our being united to Christ, joined to his body. Uh, both passages talk about the erasing of worldly distinctions, Jew and Greek, slave and free. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and Galatians 3, 26 to 27 are actually parallel passages. In fact, many believe that it was, it was actually a common saying in Paul's day that Paul was just quoting in these two places uh, to refer to the baptism of the Spirit and how that uh, brings us into one body regardless of our, uh, whether we're Jew or Greek, slave or free. And so it's fair then, I think, uh, to read baptism as the same in both places. It's the same idea. And so based on the, the sort of the internal evidence of, the, of Galatians, the spirit is central to Paul's argument about the new reality within Galatians, uh, while water baptism is otherwise absent. And this external evidence, right, that especially the parallel passage of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it's fair to say Paul's not talk, Paul is talking about the work of the Spirit here, baptizing into, us into Christ. That actually makes better sense, too, because we know that not everyone who is physically water baptized is spiritually united to Christ. Right? But everyone who has received the Spirit is. So what is Paul's argument? He's saying, if you are joined to Christ, if the Spirit has joined you to Christ you have put on Christ. If the Spirit is at work in you, you have entered into a whole new reality. But you ask, okay, well, fine, that's all well and good. How do I know if the Spirit is at work in me? Paul says we begin by the Spirit, Galatians 3.3. 1 Corinthians 12.3, again, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. His point there is not that those are magic words, but that genuine faith in Jesus as Lord comes from the Spirit. And so faith itself is evidence of the work of the Spirit in us. So if the Spirit is at work in you, if you have faith in Christ, then you have been united to Christ, you have put on Christ. Which means you're no longer under the law, but you have entered into this whole new reality. Well, what is that reality? What does that mean? Well, we we live out this union of Christ as sons of God. Sons of God. Verse 26 again. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now that Christ 
has come, now that the object of our faith has come. Paul says we're no longer imprisoned under the law. We're, we're no longer under a guardian, verse 25, for, verse 26, or because in Christ Jesus we are sons of God through faith. We're going to get more into sonship in, in actually Galatians 4 in the next section, uh, but there are a few things worth pointing out here. The first is uh, one that... Um, is kind of a background to understanding what Paul is saying, and that is that not everyone is a child of God. That, that may be striking for some of you. I don't know. Uh, there's a Roman Catholic priest named Richard Rohr who uh, says, every single person on earth is just as much children of God as we are, objectively, theologically, eternally. Where else do we think they came from? Did some other God create them except the God? Their divine DNA is the same as ours. We deny our monotheism if we believe anything else. It's a, it's a pretty strong statement. Uh, I wish I could agree with it. Uh, am I denying mon, uh, monotheism, that the idea that there's only one God, when I say that not everyone is a child of God? Uh, in fact, uh, in Acts 17.29, Paul says, human beings are God's offspring. Paul says all human beings are God's offspring. Doesn't that end the debate, right? That, that seems to clinch it. Well, not exactly. Uh, it's true. Humanity as a whole was created as God's children. But creation is not the only truth uh, that's out there, right? Human rebellion had led to the severing of our relationship to our God. So Ephesians 2.3 says that by nature we are children of wrath. Or if you're British, wrath. Right? Not wrath, wrath. Ephesians 2.3, by nature children of wrath. Uh, John 8.44, Jesus says of those opposed to him that they are children of their father, the devil. Children of their father, the devil, not children of God. And so Paul here says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We become children of God. We are adopted into God's family through our union with Christ. We become sons of when we are joined to the Son by faith. Our son, sonship is not something we have by nature. Because of sin, we're born children of wrath, enemies of God, the Scriptures say. But, but 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Right? Our sonship, our adoption into God's family is a sign of the Father's love for us. That He would take us as His children. And he would pull us to himself. Friends, you're no longer under the condemnation of the law. You're no longer children of wrath. In Christ Jesus, through faith, by the power of the Spirit, you and I are children of the Father, sons and daughters of God. The second important thing to, to point out about this language of sons of God is, is, the, is the, the language sons. Uh, there's a perfectly usable Greek word for children, which Paul doesn't use here. He uses the word sons. And uh, there are two options, right? We can see Paul as a, a bigoted, sexist pig who comes from a backward patriarchal society. It's one option. Or we can ask the question why Paul uses sons here when he uses children just a chapter later in Galatians 4. He obviously could have used the word children here, but he doesn't. He uses the word sons. Why does he do that? Well, for a few verses, Paul has been talking about the inheritance that God gave to Abraham by a promise. 
Verse 29, he's going to say that in Christ, we are all heirs according to promise. But in most ancient cultures, only sons received any part of the inheritance. So actually, not only are Paul's words not sexist, as some might think, but they're actually equalizing the sexes. Paul is saying, you, men and women, are sons of God through faith. That means you, men and women, can be heirs, can receive the inheritance. By calling us sons, Paul is saying that all can receive the inheritance regardless of your gender. In that culture, Paul, uh, the, the people who heard him would be hearing Paul saying something like this. Women, uh, you know, your earthly father in that culture is probably not going to give you any bit of the inheritance. You may feel like second-class citizens compared to your brothers, but it's not so in the family of God. Ladies, in the household of God, you are sons. You have the full rights of sons, equal rights to the Father's presence, love, spirit, and blessing equal rights as sons. One more thing about sonship. You know, a sonship is a relationship that, uh, that, that you can't earn, right? I mean, one doesn't choose to be born. Uh, one doesn't earn the right to be a child. Uh, even with, uh, certainly with infant adoptions, the infant doesn't choose to be adopted, right? Uh, nor do children earn the right to their father's inheritance, right? Employees earn wages. Uh, students earn grades but an inheritance is a gift. We are children of God, not because we have earned it, but because of Jesus, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And the Father's blessing does not come to those who earn it, to those who prove themselves, but it comes to his children as a gift of his fatherly love. That's why he calls it an inheritance. God's blessing is his tender care for his sons and daughters. To live as a son or daughter is to know that you belong to God. You are his child, and he is your father. To live as a son or daughter is to know that his blessing, his love, his care comes out of that relationship, not out of your performance, not because you're somehow better than the next guy. Which brings us to the last point, final point, that we live out of this union equal in Christ. You know, life in union with Christ is, is by the Spirit as sons of God who are equal in Christ. Verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is, neither, there is no male and female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, in some ways, I think the teaching of this verse is, is obvious, um, though its implications are profound and, and maybe boundless, uh, and yet difficult to grasp at the same time. And so the, the teaching is this, right? Our union with Christ, our in Christness, our, our relationship to Jesus by faith and the power of the Spirit means that every other earthly distinction is irrelevant, irrelevant in terms of our relationship to our Father. Our culture, our class, our race, our rank, our gender, our, our social and economic status, any earthly distinction, any earthly division that you can think of is irrelevant when it comes to our standing with God. All of the things that divide in the world should not divide in the church. All are condemned by the law, and all who believe are sons of God in Christ by faith. 
Therefore, we have an equal status before our Father, male and female, black and white, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, American citizen and foreign immigrant, right? We are all deeply loved by our Father in Christ. But then there are the implications. What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, and and this is more important than you might at first think, On the one hand, declaring the equality of people, regardless of distinctions, doesn't negate those distinctions. That's that's actually really, really important. Um, Being a Christian doesn't make you less male or less female, for instance. Um, or, Or one doesn't have to give up their culture. You don't have to stop Uh, being Norwegian or African or Middle Eastern in order to be a Christian. You don't have to give up your culture in order to be a Christian. Equality doesn't mean the obliteration of distinctions. In fact, in the new heavens and the new earth, we are told in the book of Revelation that there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. I I think the point is every culture will be represented in that place. The new heavens and the new earth is not going to be a a washing away of all cultural distinctions. That that would be boring, frankly. No, no, it's going to be all all of those distinctions will be there without the the hierarchy that we place on them in this life. Right? You see the difference? The distinctions will remain. Um, Also, when Paul said these things, the Roman civil order remained. Right? Uh, Paul's point is that the church needs to be a different kind of society. We must not value or devalue people because of these kinds of earthly distinctions, however real they might be. Of course, as salt and light, we we may influence the world around us, we may influence society, but before we call others to treat people who are different from them with dignity, we must be a society that exemplifies that. Recognizing that in Christ Jesus there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but we are all one in Christ. Christ has brought about a new reality that where all who believe in him enter into that new reality by faith. Our standing with God is not dependent on any earthly distinction. Our standing with God is in Christ. I wonder if your life reflects these things. I wonder if it reflects that this new reality of our being in Christ and no longer under the law. Or do you live under the law, right? As as one who, uh, people who are powerless, feeling condemned, feeling imprisoned, feeling trapped. Do you live by the, the performance principle, right? Thinking, do this and then I'll live. Do this and then I'll be blessed. If I can just do the right thing, then God will love me, be happy with me, or give me good things or something like that. Do you live in the flesh, focusing on distinctions, hierarchies in this life, right? Who's smart, who's funny, who's rich, who's popular, who's educated, who's whatever? Or do you live as sons, knowing that you're loved by your Father in Christ, knowing that you're not condemned, but justified and accepted in Christ, knowing that you're not powerless, but empowered by the Spirit in Christ, and relishing in your status in Christ, accepting others as God has accepted you in Christ. Are you living under the law or are you living out of your union with Christ by faith? Let's pray. 
Our Father, I pray that you would teach us more and more uh, about our, our, our union with Christ, about this new reality, about uh, the, the inheritance that is ours by faith in him and not by works, not by worldly distinctions, not by worldly accomplishment, but an inheritance given to your children, first given to your son Jesus, and then given to all of us who belong to Jesus by faith. Help us to rest in that, Father. Help us to rest in that and rejoice in that with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.